Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 60, Plutons Are Forever. Thanks for listening. Well, that's a stupid title, but let's do it anyway. Just came to me right now. Just right here in the ether. Plutons are forever. Um, The topic is plutons, geologic plutons. So, what are we going to talk about in this episode? Uh, Plutons. What they are, where they are, and what kind of story they can tell, and what kind of controversy remains about plutons here in the American West. And this is all in the context of the Exotic Terrain series that we continue to recap. And I assume you've been along with us uh, for a while, and so you're knowing that I'm uh, thinking back to uh, live stream episodes that I did on YouTube uh, from a couple of months ago, before Christmas. And uh, we're to the point now where it's two months beyond, and so I can't remember what the hell I was doing. And so I'm sitting down and watching myself. I know how ridiculous that sounds. Sitting down and watching myself from my front porch, live stream. Uh, you know, these are replays uh, from early December. And, uh, you know, they're not bad. <laughs> That's also nauseating to hear a guy talk about himself uh, kind of in the third person in a weird way. But uh, I'd mostly forgotten what I was doing. And here I am two months later, and I'm looking back and going, okay, I wonder what this guy's going to do next. And it's like, oh, okay. Oh, I see what he's, oh, oh interesting. <laughs> so uh, amnesia or whatever, I've been busy since then, and I just try to keep moving on with these sorts of things. I don't really keep recycling and going back and going back and going back and going back. You know, going back to the well to get the same uh, water and keep uh, delivering it. In a way, I guess that's true if you teach Geology 101 over and over and over again, as, as I have. But I try to stay fresh uh, the best I can. And why not? Uh, a tangent before we begin. Uh, you're used to that by now. Uh, just saying that right now reminds me that I have been live streaming my 101 lectures, and I, I, I gave a lecture a couple days ago talking about styles of volcanism. And uh, as I was giving the talk and, re- and realizing that I'm recording it, I was remembering that uh, back in the early 1990s, so that's 30 years ago, man. In the early 1990s, I was my wife and I had decided to leave Ohio and move west. We we were pregnant with our first son, and we's like we got to get out of here. Like no offense, but southwestern Ohio is not working for us. Uh, our jobs are terrific, but uh, we got to get out. We're gonna we're gonna get into babysitters and friends and preschool and everything. And before you know it, we're going to be stuck here. And many in the geology department at that school uh, where I was teaching uh, would say that literally, like, get out of here. <laughs> I wish I had the guts to, to leave or whatever. And in our fashion, we, uh, we ended the school years. My wife was right out of college and was teaching kind of a dream job at the high school there. Why not? It's Oxford, Ohio, Talawanda High School. And I was teaching at Miami University in Ohio. And uh, uh, 
So we just finished out the school year and said, hey, thanks for everything, but you know we've been here three years and, and we're, we're going west. Uh, the kicker was we didn't have jobs. <laughs> and this is before the internet. This is 1992, early 92. And so I'm writing letters, you know, to every four-year and two-year school uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest. I think I picked, you know, all the states basically and just went through some, I don't know, glossary or directory or something. Anyway, when I was applying for jobs, and I had a master's, remember, I don't have a PhD. I still don't have a PhD, which was a choice long ago. That's a whole nother discussion. But um, I knew it was going to be difficult to find a you know, permanent gig at a four-year university with just a master's degree. And um, I'm telling you this story because I decided I needed to do something that was a little bit different than what other people were doing. So I videotaped myself with one of those huge honking, you know, uh, video cameras, VHS tapes, the whole thing, you know. Uh, videotaped myself giving a lecture at the 101 level in the basement auditorium of, I think it was Scheidler Hall. And it was that lecture I was given earlier this week. And I'm like, wow, I should find that. Uh, I should find that lecture that's on VHS tape. And, um, you know, I don't think I'll do it, but I'm still giving that lecture. <laughs> I'm still giving that lecture 30 years later. It's a pretty good lecture talking about silica content and, and uh, eruptive styles. And um, I bet you if I can find that lecture, it's got the same freaking stuff I'm doing on a chalkboard uh, now that I was doing then. And that's the other thing. I'm using a chalkboard for the first time in a few years because um, a bunch of reasons. But this live stream series, the way I could kind of communicate to the real audience in the classroom and also the home audience was with a chalkboard. So... Anyway, so I guess I am, you know, going back to the well over and over and over again, uh, if it works. But I think what I was trying to say to start this episode, I try to keep fresh. I try to learn new things. I remember back then, 30 years ago, I, I honestly do remember this, to, talking to my friends and like, my God, am I really going to be interested and excited about talking what a limestone is when I'm 55 years old, for goodness sake? I don't know if I can do this for 35 years. Well, here I am, 35 years later. You know, My first day of teaching was August, August 31st, 1987, and I'm still at it. And yeah, it's still a blast. It really is. But I try to learn new things. That's what keeps me fresh. So that's, we're back to the point, seven minutes in. I'd totally forgotten what I was doing with that Plutons episode, which was Nick from Home live stream number 98, recorded on, I guess it's Friday, December 4th. Okay, so I screen grabbed a couple of key things that I was sharing with the group then, and that's what I'm going to build upon here. So, are you ready? Let's do it. Of course you're ready. You've been waiting for seven minutes. Can we finally start talking about plutons? Here we go. A pluton is a large batch of igneous rock that cooled underground. We know that igneous rocks cooled magma, right? Liquid turns to solid, and, and that's great. And we all think of lava flows, and that makes sense because that's what's happening up here on the surface. But if you keep a bunch of that liquid magma underground and you cool it slowly, there'll be nice, visible, big phaneritic textures or big minerals 
and you'll form granites or diorites or granodiorites or tonalites or gabbros. And all of those words are different kinds of igneous rocks that form in different magma chambers around the world. I know we've talked about this before. So that's the general concept of a pluton. I'd like to talk about those magma chamber rocks today. And you might be familiar with the term batholith, which is just a super large pluton. Or maybe more accurately, a batholith is, you know, dozens and dozens of individual plutons that are collectively this large, larger thing called a batholith. So as we've been recalling the live stream series on exotic terrains, we've talked about Mount Stewart and the Mount Stewart Pluton. In fact, I may have already made that distinction in that episode. Probably have now that I think about it. But my first major message today is Mount Stewart Pluton did not act alone. Mount Stewart Pluton is famous, and it's very close to Ellensburg. And to remind you, the Mount Stewart Pluton makes up uh, much of the Stewart Range, the Alpine Lakes Wilderness, the, uh, uh, the whole beautiful enchantments area between Ellensburg and Leavenworth, Washington, and Stevens Pass, kind of between those three points. And the age range of that Mount Stewart Pluton is between 96 and 91 million years ago. So there's a whole series of intrusions uh, that have been dated between 96 and 91. So you got some 93 million year old quote unquote granite, uh, etc. Okay, 94, 92, everything between 96 and 91. Okay, so that's in the neighborhood of mid Cretaceous. So the Cretaceous period, this is during the age of the dinosaurs, and we have this, this big batch of magma cooling. Uh, and crystallizing slowly underground so there's nice big crystals to look at. And if you look carefully at the Mount Stewart Pluton, you realize it's more than just one type of chemistry. There's even some dark-colored Plutons, gabbros, all the way up to true granites. Okay, well, we kind of already did that, I think, with a different podcast episode, so what are we doing today? Well, I'd like to put into perspective the fact that Mount Stewart did not act alone. Instead, Mount Stewart is on the southern tip of an absolutely amazing zone of plutons, zone of batholiths. So if the Stewart pluton is in kind of central Washington, and it is, we can hop, skip, and jump and look for more mid-Cretaceous plutons to the north, and we can find them all through the North Cascades in Washington. Oh, damn, we can cross the border? Well, right now we can't, but we can cross the border into British Columbia? Sure. Are we going to find more of these mid-Cretaceous plutons that are, let's, let's broaden it out now, maybe between 120 and 80 million years ago? Let's, let's have that be our time window today, okay? Not just 96 to 91, that's the Mount Stewart pluton, but let's Let's go 120 to 80. Well, if that's our uh, kind of time window and we're looking for magma chamber batches, in other words, plutonic igneous rocks in British Columbia, we're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of these mid-Cretaceous plutons, uh, British Columbia, uh, going from 
kind of the Okanagan region of Washington slash British Columbia, working our way uh, up the west coast of British Columbia, all the way to the Yukon and even into Alaska. It's collectively called the Coast Plutonic Complex, the CPC, the Coast Plutonic Complex. It's an amazing belt of plutonic rocks, Mount Stewart just being the southernmost tip of this thing. Now, before I lose you, I don't know how quick your, your trigger finger is here. If you're out you know, on a run or a walk or you're shoveling manure in the barn, I, I don't know. Do you, do you stick with these regardless of how intrigued you are? Just in case you got a itchy trigger figure on the on the stop button or delete button, I want to ask you a question. How come all that plutonic material is there? Do you have a plate tectonic model? Have you been taught some sort of plate tectonic model to explain a huge batholith? And again, it's more than just a batholith. It's a whole yeah, bigger yet. A series of batholiths stretching from Alaska down to central Washington? What the hell's going on? How do you explain that? What were the tectonic plates doing to generate that volume of magma? And by the way, it all kind of quits 80 million years ago. And by the way, it's all, you know, pretty much not there 120 million years ago. So it was a hot time, no pun intended. It was, a, it was, a, it was, something was really happening during that time window. And wait, it gets better than that before we try to answer the question. I bet you already answered the question using kind of the conventional answer, but I have an unconventional approach for you today. Now you can't turn the thing off, can you? Look at you. Put your hand back in your pocket. Get away from that button on that phone. If we leave British Columbia and northern Washington... And are you willing to go south with me? Are you willing to go down suddenly to California? You know what I'm going to say next. There's another huge series of plutons called the Sierra Nevada Basilisk in eastern Washington. Very well known to many of us in the lower 48 states. Oh, sure, yeah. Yosemite National Park, Half Dome, El Capitan. The guy did the free solo, up the face, whatever. Super nail-biting stuff. John Muir Trail. Kings Canyon, Sequoia, Donner Pass, all that stuff. That's the Sierra Nevada Basilisk. It also is mid-Cretaceous. It's also roughly 120 to 80 million years ago. Huh, really? You say. That's you talking. Hmm, okay. But wait, I got one more for you. How about if we go further south yet? Let's cruise through the Mojave Desert a little bit, and then suddenly, south of, I don't know, like Riverside, California, or something like that, heading down towards San Diego, we're extreme Southern California now, here comes another one of these things. Here comes another impressive, impressive batch of dozens and dozens of plutons, all between 120 and 80 million years old, collectively called the Peninsular Ranges Basilisk. Have you heard of it? It's in extreme Southern California, and it crosses another border. This time we're crossing into Mexico, and the Peninsular Ranges Batholith goes all you know, halfway down Baja, California, in Mexico. So talk about a regional story. We're talking about 
granites, plutons, from Alaska down to Mexico, quite literally. Plutons are forever, bro. I guess that's a good title for this talk after all. So that's describing it, and I want to do more field data, and then we'll come back to that question. Why do we have all of this magma being generated at the same time, Alaska down to Mexico, with a few breaks here and there, by the way? But what is the mechanism to generate all that plutonic material, all of that magma? Okay, before I try to kind of sink our teeth into that, which is really where we're headed... I want to intrigue you even a little bit more. Maybe you're maybe you're a tough nut to crack. Maybe you're not you're not that impressed so far. All right. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to help you. Most everybody's wild right now, so I don't know if you've looked around. Everybody else is just super excited, but whatever. We'll try. Let's stay down south. Uh, peninsula ranges. Uh, Geologists have been studying that batholith. I'll just call it the batholith now. The Peninsula Ranges batholith, that Mexican batholith. They've been studying that thing for, you know, for decades and cracked open a bunch of, again, I'll just say granites, but you know there's a range of compositions. They cracked open, you know, outcrop after outcrop after outcrop. Let's take samples, samples, samples. Let's send them to the labs. Let's get ages, et cetera, and geochemistry. Well, it turns out that that Peninsula Ranges batholith has a split personality. The western half of it is older. The western half of the Peninsula Ranges batholith, split it right down the middle. Western half, uh, granites between 140 and 105. Locally called the Alicitos. Alicitos. Alacitos, I suppose that's what it is. Alacitos arc. And then if we jump over to the eastern half of the Peninsula Ranges Basilith, it's younger stuff. The La Posta Plutons, between 99 and 92 million years old. And according to Robert Hildebrand, and he's really the guy that I showcased in this, if you really want to do your, do your uh, homework now, you can you know, spend an hour watching this thing this live stream, you'll have video and all sorts of clown show behavior. Uh, but Bob Hildebrand is the guy that I was uh, kind of showcasing in that live stream on the front porch because his maps show this split personality. And coming right down the middle of the Peninsula Ranges Batholith is this um, zone, which I still don't totally understand, but he's got datable material right down the middle of that Batholith at 100 million years old which you may remember is 100 million years ago is a big, big date that keeps popping up when studying exotic terrains of the American West. Specifically, that's the date for North America colliding with the insular superterrene, the last major superterrene to arrive. Okay, so you got it? Western half of that uh, Mexican batholith between 140 and 105 eastern half between 99 and 92, and the fence between those two halves is this 100-million-year-old whatever. Well, I wouldn't waste your time with it if it was just that. But of course, if we head north now just a little bit and go to eastern California and we go to the Sierra, same freaking thing, man. 
Same freaking thing. 100 million year old guy coming right down the middle. Western half is older. That's the Western Sierra Arc between 125 and 102. The eastern half of the Sierra Nevada Batholith is younger granites between 98 and 86. The Sierra Crest Plutons. If you're visualizing and keeping up with what I'm talking about, I'll give you one more difference between the eastern half and the western half of both of those batholiths. There's a compositional change. Are you aware of all this? This is new to me. I don't know Californian, Baja, Mexico geology at all. The western half of those two batholiths are more mafic in composition. The granites are darker. There's, there's more black mineral content. So there's diorites with some gabbro in the western half of both the Sierra Nevada and the Peninsula Ranges Batholith. And the eastern half of those two guys, remember, they're younger, but they're also more felsic, meaning they're lighter in color, meaning there's less and less black mineral content. And both of those batholiths are intruding up through metamorphic rocks. Today, green schists, amphibolites, migmatites. Damn, this is sounding familiar, isn't it? I hope it is. Have you been listening to these podcast episodes in kind of order? The last few we've been talking about, like Skagit, nice, Swakane, nice, uh, uh, the Green Rocks, the Ingles. I forget the title of the, the, the episodes, but we were talking about green schists and amphibolites and, and um, migmatites. So there's a, there's a regional thing. There's... It's exciting, just on that level alone. You know, Washington's a great place for geology, blah, blah, blah. It's the Washington is the geology, uh, this is the place for, what do I say? Washington is Disneyland for geologists. Clever. Well, it's not just Washington. You go to these other places, it's the same. Well, it is kind of just Washington. We got Ice Age floods, we got magnitude 9 earthquakes, we don't need to go there again. But... If we're just looking at the mid-Cretaceous, we haven't cornered the market on beautiful granites uh, that intrude uh, metamorphic rocks of high-grade form that are also beautiful. And again, we're getting back to this question of what is the regional story? Well, to finish my little uh, survey of the field data, it it breaks down a little bit, but let's try it anyway. If we go back up to British Columbia now, you with me still? So we started in Mexico, we were in California, now we're doing this major hop up to northern Washington and into British Columbia, Yukon and Alaska, coast plutonic complex. There's also a split personality, but the split personality breaks down a bit. Running right down as a right racing stripe right down the middle of this CPC in British Columbia, there is this, again, 100 million year old whatever. And I keep saying whatever because I don't really know if there are intrusions that are 100 million or if it's kind of a um, a traumatized zone where, we, where we're dating folds and faults and we're dating you know new batches of metamorphic rocks that are at 100 million. Remember, this, I said it before, but I'll say it differently now. The 100 million year old event, the main event is this slam, is this major, major collision between pre-made crust out in the ocean and the western margin of North America. We pick up a hell of a lot of real estate with that collision with the insular superterrain at 100 million years ago. So uh, that's on my list, I guess, when I start coming back to this, if I ever do, 
to this level of detail by studying these exotic terrain stories, what is at that 100-million-year-old racing stripe coming down the middle? But that's where the similarities end. Weirdly, can't explain it, the age pattern is opposite in British Columbia. The older granites are in the east and the younger granites are in the west. I'll give you the numbers that I got from Hildebrand. The eastern half of the CPC granites between 190 and 110. Western half of the CPC in British Columbia between 160 and 102. There's actually a serious amount of overlap. So it's just just not that nice, neat, tidy, west, old, young, east. And I don't even have the compositional stuff for you. Okay, well, that's the data. Now, what was your answer, junior geologist or maybe senior geologist? I don't know who listens. I, I do know who listens to these, but yet I don't know. You know, I, I continue to get nice little emails and comments and Twitter and everything else. It's like, I, I'm an artist. I listen. I, I've gone through that a number of times. So I kind of know who you are, but there's a lot of listeners, I think. I don't know how many of you are geology people, so I should probably figure that out. <laughs> probably should know who the audience is, but whatever. Um, if you are a geologist or former geologist, retired geologist, or up-and-coming geologist, or just a fan of popular geology. You have been taught but these batholiths were created by subduction, right? The traditional model that is still conventional wisdom among pretty much everybody, in a general sense, is that for tens of millions of years, we've talked about this before, the Carr and Sigalock show, if you remember, for tens of millions of years, the standard conventional story is eastward subduction of the Farallon Plate or some sort of major oceanic plate, diving to the east, down to the east, and diving beneath, yes, British Columbia, yes, California, yes, Mexico, and that subduction zone is going to generate huge volumes of magma. What's the evidence for that? Well, you go to active subduction zones today, and you got big batholiths. you got big active magma bodies. So, of course, if that's what's going on today, then can't we assume that's the story there? And it's more than just those plutons. Especially in California, there's something known as the California Triad, where you have actually three major geologic features that all add up to a basic convergent oceanic versus continental plate boundary. That is, at the coast of California, there's the Franciscan complex, which is a bunch of junk that got scraped off of the downgoing ocean plate as it was subducting to the east. The Forearc Basin is known as the Great Valley of California. And then the volcanic arc, when it was active, where the Sierra Nevada Batholith is today, used to be a line of beautiful, simple, Andean-like stratovolcanoes. Okay, well, I guess that could be the message I give you, and that could have been the message I did in December from my front porch, and everybody would have been just fine with it. Because that is what is taught, and has been taught for 50 years. But... If you recall, we did have an episode here, and that episode here was recalling a live stream episode from the backyard when the weather was a little nicer in October, talking about new 
tomography data that we have in the lower mantle, where we can find slabs of ocean floor that used to be in an ocean and has been subducted, and it's still down there. And by doing some basic physics and some basic math and some basic um, other stuff, there was a convincing case, according to me and a few others who have really like, looked carefully at the work, Karin Siglock's work, uh, work with Mitch Mahalanek, that there was westward subduction and not eastward subduction of the ocean floor that used to be off the coast of North America in the Cretaceous. I'll say it again because that's the big point we're going to finish on. Is it possible these huge plutons, plutons are forever from Alaska down to Mexico, is it possible those plutons are not from subduction? Especially, is it possible they're not related to eastward subduction of the ocean floor? Is it possible, says Robert S. Hildebrand, H-I-L-D-E-B-R-A-N-D. If you go to Robert, I, I should have looked it up. Oh, shit, can I do it here? Um, can I type with one hand? Robert, if I go to Robert... Hildebrand.com. Scintillating podcast now. Mm-hmm. Shit, who's that? This is Robert Hildebrand, who uh, is an engineer professor at Virginia Tech. Oh, God. All right, hang on, hang on. I'm not going to stop and edit this podcast. All right, yes. RobertHildebrand.com. And if you get there and uh, you get to his uh, selected publications page, he's got everything in PDF form for you. So if you really want to read this guy's work, what is it? What is it uh, I'm on his main page. How do you get to that publications page? Oh, shit. I can't do it easily. Uh, Go to roberthildebrand.com, click on publications. I'm looking at a window right now that just says selected publications of Robert S. Hildebrand. And this is important because it's it's tough to get your hands on this guy's work. I mean, he's, he's published... It's much of it's through the Geological Society of America. They charge way too much money for these bound periodicals. It's more than periodicals, though. These are special papers. These are 100-plus long papers with absolutely stunning maps. I don't... I've talked to Robert once on the phone, and it was mostly like listening to Robert for an hour, uninterrupted, really. I couldn't get a word in edgewise. And for the last 15 years, this guy has just been, I think it's self-supported. Like, he's, he's an outlier guy. He's not in anybody's real club, I guess. He's trained as a geologist. I don't have his total story. And as I ask around for opinions about Bob from others that I respect, and they said, don't mention my name now. Don't get me in trouble. So... I mean, the general message was this guy's like, you know, out doing his thing. It's totally against the grain. Um, I don't really buy what he's saying. But as I've really 
listened carefully to those kind of mainstream geologists. I can't believe I just used that phrase, but I guess I did. Uh, guys that I really respect. I don't think they've spent much time reading this guy's work, this Helderbrand stuff. So I have just a couple minutes left. Can I finally get to what Hildebrand says is the model that he prefers? And he hits it real hard. Almost all his work is tied to this slab failure model. So I'll try with my words here to describe westward subduction with slab failure, according to Robert Hildebrand, to explain these mid-Cretaceous plutons between 120 and 80 million years ago. And keep in mind, I'm not talking about Baja BC yet. I think we'll do that next time. And we'll talk about these plutons in a little bit more detail than I have before. We're not even talking about that. We're just talking about how do you explain all of this magma chamber rock at roughly the same time from Alaska to Mexico? And Hildebrand says, there is just not enough evidence to confirm this Warren Hamilton model of eastward subduction of the Farallon Plate. And now, especially since we have all these slabs that are down in the, in the lower mantle, and Karin and her group say it's westward subduction beneath the insular superterrain. So it's basically asking, what do you do with this ocean crust that's off the west coast of North America during the mid-Cretaceous? We're going to close that ocean basin, are we not, between Insular and North America? Everybody agrees, yes. We're going to get rid of that ocean basin gradually. We're going to subduct that ocean basin gradually. No problem. Everybody's with it there. And we're making huge volumes of magma that's now along the western margin of North America. Fine. But what is the angle of subduction? Is the, is the ocean floor being consumed by eastward or westward subduction? The old model is eastward subduction, therefore you generate all the magma, case closed. Hildebrand and just a few others say, no, there's not enough evidence for eastward. It's got to be westward subduction. And here's the, here's the tricky part. You fail the slab. When you finally get the insular, think of the insular superterrain as continental crust. It kind of is, but kind of isn't. But let's just think of it as a miniature continent, okay, a microcontinent, and then to use the parlance of the old days. So we have the insular microcontinent inching closer and closer to North America with this slowly disappearing ocean basin between the insular microcontinent to the west and North America. You with me? Bob says, remove that ocean basin crust by slipping it to the west, by diving it to the west beneath the insular. Wait, 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 wait. Don't be, hang on. Keep subducting it beneath insular. Don't subduct it beneath North America. Subduct the ocean floor beneath the insular. Keep getting insular microcontinent closer and closer and closer and closer and closer to North America until when? Until 100 million years ago when you have a massive collision between two continents, the insular microcontinent and North America continent proper. You're still waiting? Bob says, we're going to get a massive amount of magma forming immediately after the collision. 
And his mechanism is, when you finally collide the two continents, the last piece of ocean floor is going to leave the surface and start diving away from the picture. We've converted from an ocean story to two continents colliding. But as we fail that slab, as we fail the last part of the ocean floor, it's basically going to tear away as it sinks into the lower mantle or into the mantle. And as we break off that last piece of ocean floor dropping into the earth interior, we're going to get a bunch of asthenosphere. We're going to get a bunch of, of, of high heat mantle flowing to the surface. And that is the mechanism to generate the magma. So that's a major difference, isn't it? Not only is it the angle of the subducting slab, Bob says westward subduction, everybody else says eastward subduction as you close that basin, but it's also really the timing, as I understand it, it's the timing of the plutons. Bob says most of the plutons, plutons are forever, remember, Bob says most of the plutons are post-collision. And now that gets messy because I thought I said our, our age range for the plutons that we're talking about today go from 120 to 80. I did. And didn't I say that the western half of the Californian Mexican batholiths are there before the collision? I did. So I, I got problems as well trying to kind of justify all this between these groups. I guess I need to add that to my list. Does Bob really like the 100 million year collision? I'm pretty sure he does. So if he does, how does he explain these pre-collision plutons in the west and these younger plutons in the east? I need to look at that myself. But the main message of our episode today is to entertain a possible new way to view all of this plutonic material in this crazy belt of rock from Alaska to Mexico. And before we get too happy with that, I think I just decided our next episode will be looking at the plutons and their paleomagnetic signatures and realize there's a couple major wrenches in the position of those plutons originally compared to the position of the plutons today. And if you know how Baja BC stuff well, you already know what I'm going to be doing next time. But if you don't, it'll be fun to kind of take the next step. Well, as usual, it's always a kind of a slow build for these episodes, you know, I don't do any thinking ahead of time except grabbing a couple of screen grabs and just kind of going for it. So by the time I kind of catch my stride, we're about done. And that's true here too. So word to the wise, that's probably what's coming in the next episode too. Slow build, slow build until a huge crescendo and then we're all exhausted. That was dirty and weird. Okay. Thank you for listening, everybody. I do appreciate you listening to not only this one, but all of these, and making it to the end. Thank you, dear listener. Goodbye. Have a good day. I'll see you next time. Goodbye.